From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart. We're a left-wing show about ideas, about academia, and books. Every year, the Financial Times does this enormous, multi-page spread about the best books of the year. Each of their editors recommends a list, and it runs the gamut, from books on politics to economics to, well, even children's books. This got us thinking, why don't we do that? This holiday season, we should give you a list of book recommendations. Now, we don't have an enormous team of editors, but we do have some excellent past guests that we could call back. We got a few of them together and we asked them a simple question. What is your book of the year? But in true darts style, we're not here to celebrate the books. We're here to trash them. Because this isn't about the best books. It's about the worst. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first annual Darts and Letters 2021 Dumb Book Awards. We'll have a roundtable with past guests Luke Savage and Matt McManus, as well as longtime darts research assistant and first-time guest David Mosscrop, plus some special surprise call-in guests. All that and more right after the break. Darts and Letters needs your support. We're trying to build something here, something that holds our learned class to account. The show takes on the intellectuals and pseudo-intellectuals that shape our public discourse. It also takes on the technocrats and policy wonks that shape our public policy. We're here to look at the world of ideas and to see how those ideas shape our world, for better or for worse. So if you can get behind that, chip in on Patreon. Patrons get content a day early, and I'm looking to start making exclusive bonus material. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Okay, on with the show. Today, we've assembled an esteemed roundtable. Two former guests, Luke Savage, staff writer at Jacobin and co-host of the Michael and Us podcast. It is truly a must-listen for left-wing movie fans. And Matt McManus. He's author of The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, and he's a podcaster with Plastic Pills. If you want to deep dive into political theory, Matt is your guy. And first time, long time, David Mosscrop. David is a researcher with darts, but it's his first time on the show. He's also a columnist with the Washington Post, and he's host of the podcast Open to Debate. They are our panel in the first annual 2021 Darts and Letters Dumb Book Awards. Matt McManus and Luke Savage, welcome back to uh, Darts and Letters. And and Dave, welcome to the program. (laughs) You're part of the team, but you've never been on mic, so... Really uh, happy to have you here. It's nice to be on this side. Yeah, happy to be back. Yeah, good to be back. I think what we're trying to do here is start a little um, annual sort of holiday tradition to sort of like review some of the dumbest books of 2021. And I've gathered you all here today because you've reviewed some of them yourselves and brought me some amazing suggestions, all very different, but all uh, very dumb in their own right. And so I thought we'd maybe just go around the table and uh, and who wants to begin? Well, let me break the ice then with, with CanCon then. Can I do that? Because it's pretty good that we meet our CanCon requirements off the top and then we can just talk about whatever we want. <laughs> can I hold it up? Yes, please. Whoa. <laughs> See, that's, the, that's what I was hoping for. You know, if you're listening, you can't see this, but I just want you to take in the whoa. And the book is called The Two Michaels, Innocent Canadian Captives and High Stakes Espionage in the U.S.-China Cyber War. David, you didn't quote the best part, which was the effusive blurb from Madeleine Albright at the top, which for me is what really tied it all together. (laughs) A gripping human drama. This is like a a rival to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This is is real good stuff. It reads like vintage Le Carre with the one particular stipulation that the two Michaels are not spies, which is uh, something that comes up very early in the book. <laughs> and it, uh, just as a statement, full stop, which sums up the book very well. Statement, full stop. <laughs> it's a nice piece of CanCon. 
it came out quite quickly. I just finished reviewing it for The Globe, where I tried to be a little more constructive than I'll be today. And it is a classic tale. It's written by a, a you know, a, the international affairs correspondent for the Canadian press, Mike Blanchfield, and uh, Fenn Osler Hampson, the chancellor's professor at Carleton University and president of the World Refugee and Migration Council. And so it's written by a journalist and, and a scholar. And it is a summary of the two Michaels saga and the Hmong saga. She's part of this too, obviously. And uh, the, the sort of growing Cold War between the United States and China and the, the sort of battle for hegemony. That's the, the background of it. It is one of the most sort of credulous books I've ever read and a sort of implicit defense of Western hegemony. I want to start by characterizing the book through the way that it characterizes the central players. It constructs the Michaels in terms of these, uh, almost like a hagiography, a sort of glowing adventure tale of two well-meaning, you know, strapping young Canadians who set out to seek peace for the world and learn about uh, the globe. And it creates the persona of Meng Wanzhou as a sort of like semi-competent, spoiled Chinese brat. And it infantilizes her. And so whereas they describe the, the Michaels in sort of glowing heroic terms, the kind of, you know, you'd want to have a beer with these guys, this is how it, how it opens with Meng. As her long overnight flight from Hong Kong was in its final descent towards Vancouver on December 1, Meng Wanzhou enjoyed her final hour of freedom in a luxurious first-class cocoon. It was a self-contained pod and soothing beige, her seat folded out to a flat bed. Suffering from what court documents would later describe as a bout of hypertension, the 46-year-old chief financial officer was comfortably dressed in a dark hooded tracksuit, white t-shirt, and white running shoes. <laughs> it's like a Dan Brown level sort of exposition there. <laughs> and only she can crack the code. Later, it's, it's, it's describing the scene of her outside the courthouse and her protective detail. And, and get this, the leader of the security detail, gray-haired and goateed behind black glasses, shielded Mung with his right arm while his left hand pressed his cell phone to his ear. He draped his arm around Mung like a protective father. She burrowed into his shoulder like a frightened child. <laughs> wow. And I'll read one final one because I just, I can't help it. So, it, the, you know, it, it's irritating in the way that it is, is constructing uh, her, for one, and it consistently infantilizes her. And the final thing is this. Is get, then later the book gets into the rivalry between the United States and China and uh, the role that Huawei has played in you know, stealing technologies or not stealing technologies and intellectual property. This is how it describes RAND, the RAND Corporation. This is how you know what you're getting is credible uh, and should be taken at face value. A major study of Chinese technology companies undertaken by the independent nonprofit RAND Research Organization <laughs> for the U.S. Air Force <laughs> revealed the intricate, intricate connections between China's private quote-unquote companies, including Huawei and the Chinese state. And now I want to bring you to the final quote that I'll get from the book. And I've been building towards this. This is the apogee or the nadir, depending on how you want to think of it. This is in the context of Mulroney talking about what Canada should do about this. Mulroney was in the room when U.S. President Ronald Reagan confronted Russian President Mikhail Gorbachev. He said to him, look, our position is very simple. We win, you lose. And he kept that position. And they kept the pressure on. And the Cold War was won without a shot being fired. <laughs> <laughs> No asterisk, no PS Korea exists, you know, no like remember Forrest Gump. There was no, there was, there was nothing else. Just, so it is, it is credulous bit after credulous bit of this constructing the case. And, and what it makes it the dumbest for me is that one third of it is actually a pretty good critique of Canada's falling down on the file, how we dithered, how we didn't, how, you know, should we have picked her up in the first place? Probably not. We were caught in between the two countries. Why didn't we do a release sooner? It gets into that. And it's actually quite good. It gets sort of close to a critique on the U.S.-China hegemony uh, construction and battle and, and the sort of looming and, and extraordinarily dangerous Cold War. But then otherwise, it is two-thirds utterly credulous defense of Western hegemony that doesn't probe, you know, why China might behave the way China might behave. <laughs> Why countries might be a little bit nervous about the U.S. in the way that the U.S. is nervous about China. 
why what American espionage has had to do with you know the the last several decades globally, but also in the U.S. It touches very briefly on some allegations of spying against China, but it's mostly this construction of of the sort of like wakening Chinese dragon that needs to be restrained, and the and the innocent Michaels that are caught in the middle. And so, it to me, it is it is extraordinarily disappointing as a book because one third of it it gets so close. And actually does read as interesting and introspective and gripping and smart. And two-thirds of it reads as, you know, credulous agitprop. And it I could only read it seven minutes at a time. Wow. <laughs> I'm not joking. I keep a little app that tells me how long I'm reading. It's a little app that I really, really like to track how long. And it's like seven minutes was my average. And I have to put it down and take a walk around the room and start again. I'm still thinking about the uh, the Cold War ending with not a single <laughs> shot being fired. I guess, you know... Those uh, all those all those troops in Vietnam and Korea were Swiss, I guess. <laughs> but what's funny is that you know when I was writing the review for the Globe, the things I mentioned was the Vietnam War, the Korean War, but also you know there was a U.S. pilot shot down and killed over Cuba, very specifically shot down with the shot being fired and you know an American dying. I mean, quite famously, right? I mean, Major Anderson sort of portrayed as an American hero for for what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they just couldn't even wrap their heads around that. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's stunning to me that the credulity and what gets me is it makes me think, okay, well, now I have to interrogate every single line because if you let something like that through uncritically without commentary, a, a line that, that really serves no role in advancing the thesis of the book, really. Uh, then I'm now I want to I want to hear you explain every single line in this book and give a little <laughs> bit of evidence and it's really short on that and and the thing that makes it the weakest is it reads as if they are setting out with a pre-existing conclusion on their theory and now they're going to defend it without ever trying to argue for the for the theory right and and they construct these characters that are that are caricatures in order to do that. The late great Michael Brooks once said that, you know, in order to understand something and what differentiates the right from the left, I think you might be a little bit wrong about this, but it's a good line nonetheless, is historicization, right? Putting things in the historical context. And for me, I'm no defender of China. I think that the CCP does a lot of awful things. And I think in many ways, it's a totalitarian state committing an act of genocide right now. However, in order to understand why China is the way it is, uh, it has to be situated in a long history of Western colonialism and imperialism. Uh, the kind of negative impact that had on the state, running through at the very least the 1950s and going forward. Do they make any kind of effort to even gesture to that or point out that, yeah, maybe we made a few mistakes of our own when it came to handling this file? No, not really. I mean, not certainly in the in the context of the last century, this century. There's, there's critiques of Canadian foreign policy insofar as how we handled the two Michaels and Monk after it had happened. And there was a little critique of the, of the way the arrest went down. And, and a sort of slight critique, again, of the Trump administration, because obviously it was political. I mean, they even say, what gets me in the book is they even talk about how Trump's handling of this case was plainly politicized, not just political, but, but expressly politicized. I mean, he's talking about using her as a bargaining chip, right, to get a trade deal. So there's just, there's nowhere to hide there. It's obvious. And they, and they get into it, and they're critical about that. But there's no going back and saying, okay, let's look at the last several decades and see where this comes from and what has led to this. It's just a little, there's chatter around the, the rise of, of the 5G technology and communications networks that dig into that but they isolate it. So it, it reads as if the whole book is about a very specific cyber war and 5G rather than you know a century of, of this. There's a little talk of obviously the British mm-hmm. and a bit of that history, but it's superficial. And that's what I'm saying. The book should maybe be twice as long or not exist, right? I mean, this is how I feel about a lot of books like this. Right. And make them twice as long and 10 times as critical or don't do them at all. But of course, you know, they always do them. And, but so this was truly a holiday treat, the two Michaels, that I, I highly recommend that you, you give to someone that is on your naughty list. <laughs> your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Darts and letters. Is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hello, this is Lyda Gold of the Art for the End Times podcast, and I'm here to tell you about the not just the worst book I've read this year, but the worst book I've ever fucking read in my whole life. 
This is American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic by one Andrew fucking Cuomo. Now, you might remember Andrew Cuomo from such things as not being governor of New York anymore. And this book is a real time capsule because he wrote this memoir of how great he was during the COVID-19 crisis and was like clearly supposed to catapult him into like a presidential bid. Like that's clearly the idea behind it. But it's fucking bullshit, just like he is. It's written as though he just kind of yelled it into a tape recorder. And that's kind of funny because like he got into a lot of trouble because his staff, he like made his staff do all this like extra work and research for the book. And it's like, that's like a huge ethics violation. Uh, yeah, uh, the book is garbage. It's hilarious. It's a lit, you know what, actually, it's a, it's a work of art. Because it's a, it reminds me, actually, of Kazuo Ishiguro's Remains of the Day. Because it is a perfect work of an unreliable narrator who does not understand anything that is going on in his life. So yeah, this is a book about how uh, Cuomo was great, and everything he did was great, and he listens to the people, and he's a humble servant of the people, but the people are also really stupid, you know? They're just like a mob. What can you do? You gotta listen to the science. He likes science and facts. He's not a politician. He's a counter-politician. He's not a, he's not a Washington insider. He's a, he's a guy from the streets of Queens. Of course, he was the fucking governor's son himself. Anyway, uh, moral of the story is, this book sucks. Andrew Cuomo sucks. His brother sucks. And uh, they're all dead now. It's great. Thanks to Letta Gold for calling in. I have to say, full disclosure, her book did come out actually in late 2020, but I'm going to let it slide because Letta is great. You can follow her on Twitter and you can follow her podcast, Art for the End Times. Back to our roundtable with Matt McManus, Luke Savage, and David Mosscrop in just a bit. But first, a quick message. We're a proud member of the Harbinger Network. It's a collection of left-wing Canadian podcasts. Podcasts like Kino Lefter, which has a new episode about my favorite wrestler, The Rock. Harbinger is also running a fundraising campaign, and you should support it. Go to support.harbingermedianetwork.com. Okay, on with the show. Next up, Luke Savage of Jacobin and Michael and Us has his pick. So, Luca, maybe I'll nominate you next, but maybe to kind of, uh, by way of transition, you review a lot of sort of liberal political books and political memoir. Can you describe a little bit of that genre and what that genre is like? Yeah, I mean, okay, the liberal books I review tend to be one of two things. They are either, you know, these kind of ostensibly grand statements about urgent battle cries during the, the Trump era or now after the Trump era, those kind of books that that have this very um, alarming kind of or alarmist premise that like fascism was here yesterday and this is why radical centrism is the only thing that can save us or whatever. Or this is why sensible republicanism is the only thing that can save us, whatever. Uh, you know, insert your liberal fetish object here. Everyone just needs to be more polite. Right. Everyone needs to be more polite. The other type, which I guess is the kind that's preoccupied me especially is the sort of either election year or, or post-election year uh, sort of memoir qua political treatise book. Uh, and of course, figures on the right do this as well, but it's the liberal books that I most often read. Um, and I guess if I can reveal my book, if that's okay, it's very mm -hmm. much in this vein. It's by a little politician you may have heard of, a, a young upstart renegade with some out-of-the-box ideas who in 2020 came very close to shaking up America's sclerotic political order. He's the current <laughs> Secretary of Transport, Pete Buttigieg, and he's written this little book called Trust, America's Best Chance. <laughs> so this is the kind of book that, as I said in my review, counts the likes of Hannah Arendt and Edmund Burke and Thomas Jefferson and <laughs> Nate Silver and David Axelrod uh, as well, among its citations. And it also features the word trenchant very prominently on the back cover. So that's the kind of book we're dealing with here. What does Madden Albright think of it? <laughs> <laughs> Disappointingly, there's no Madeline Albright mm. review on the back of the book, which um, normally, if I hadn't been uh, paid to review it, I wouldn't have picked it up because that's usually my bar for whether I pick <laughs> up a book or not. It's the only criterion that matters. I think like the liberal moral panic about sort of lack of trust is one of the defining characteristics of sort of like the quote unquote you know, post-truth era. And it seems to me like completely devoid of any kind of honest self-reflection about the way that institutions have failed us or even any sort of like sophisticated political or philosophical take on like what trust means or when something is trustworthy. So I guess maybe just by my first question would be like, how does he define trust? Like what, what is trust exactly and what makes someone trustworthy? 
It's a good question. And I also think that's the right series of questions to ask about a book like this. I mean, first of all, a book like this is not actually going to tell you anything. I mean, <laughs> uh, if when I pick up a book like this, I'm not, I'm not looking to learn anything directly from its pages. I'm looking to learn uh, from what it elides, what it doesn't mention, from the uh, unexamined assumptions that seem to be animating its inquiries, if you can call them that, whatever. Um, but so, I mean, to, to more directly answer your question, trust is very vaguely defined in this book, uh, because ultimately it really functions more as a crude framing device than as anything else. I'll read from his uh, introduction here. This is kind of how he sets up the book. He writes, in the years ahead, I expect my political party and eventually both political parties to apply themselves toward uh, creating this decisive change. It will require sustained energy, imagination, controversy, and hope. We will have to examine the basic definitions of words and ideas we have often unthinkingly thrown around our whole lives. Democracy, equity, freedom, America. We will have to decide which approach we wish to emulate from abroad, which structures we wish to dismantle from before, which strategies we retrieve from our past, uh, you know, uh, which institutions we may need to fashion completely anew. So that sounds like, you know, he's ready to do some big thinking. A few paragraphs later, he characterizes the book thusly. He says... I believe we face a threefold crisis of trust in this country. Americans distrust the institutions on which we depend. Increasingly, we distrust one another, and the world trusts America less than perhaps it ever has. Whether we rebuild that trust will determine whether we can build a better future. So trust here is kind of set up as these three, uh, in this three-pronged way, but with these, I mean, the, the prongs are are pretty vague, if I can put it like that. Very little in the book is actually, I think, strictly incorrect. The problem is that when you have a premise as kind of diffuse as, you know, there's this thing called trust and on the face of it, it has this very colloquial sort of meaning, this everyday meaning he gives it. Trust is just defined by things like dependability. You know, um, if you have a friend who's always on time, eventually that builds trust. Uh, uh, Old Faithful <laughs> is an example. You know, the geyser is like an example of trust because it always goes off at the same time. Big Ben is trust and it that defines, you know, that British punctuality <laughs> we all know and love. You know, the book is the book is full of that sort of thing, right? But the problem is, you know, when you have a conceit like that, that is so broad, it ultimately doesn't end up elucidating a lot. Like if I was to sum up this book in one or two sentences, it would be something like the quality of trust is necessary for institutions broadly defined to function. There has been a generalized decline of trust, which is causing institutions to function less well than they did before. That's the book. I don't <laughs> think it takes 200 pages or whatever to say that. It doesn't take references to Hannah Arendt or, or even David Axelrod, <laughs> uh, really, to say that. But so, yeah, that's uh, Pete Buttigieg and uh, Trust America's Best Chance. To coin a terrible pun, can we even say that like our national trust fund is like depleted? Is that like the thesis of the book? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, you could use trust as an interesting sort of framework, but one would lead sort of rationally towards the conclusion that people like Pete Buttigieg aren't trustworthy. You know, like one of the definitions of trust is like, optimistically accepting a position of sort of vulnerability because you think accepting that position will serve your ends. So let's say we decide, okay, we're going to go out for drinks. Luke doesn't show up. Well, you've just wasted, you know, whatever, half an hour of my time. Now, if that happens three times, then the trustworthiness is not grounded in anything. And when you, when you port that over to the domain of politics and you ask, well, are the Democrats trustworthy? And then you look at the financial crisis and the way that working people have gotten hosed or the sort of modernization of our economy and, and the free trade deals that have you know, resulted in like real incomes dropping since the 1970s or wars sold under false pretenses. Like there's a crisis of trust for a good reason. So if you had a good definition of it, you use that honestly. I think like you said, it's what it elides, like what it doesn't talk about. Can I quickly interject with something that's been driving me nuts since Luke showed us a picture of the book? Mm -hmm. uh, if you're listening, I highly recommend you either come look at the video or look this up yourself. But this is the cover of the book, Trust, 20 Ways to Build a Better Country by the former Governor General of Canada, David Johnson, who wrote this in 2018. It looks, the covers look the same. Yeah. What does the Buttigieg cover look like? It's like a... Okay, so the covers have a very similar kind of thrust to them. But this is the mode of the moment, right? I mean, this was, 
you know, Luke mentioned that the, the, the liberal order is obsessed right now because there's a, an attack on their institutions and people are distrusting them. But like we went through this in Canada a few years ago too, the same sort of like vapid trust mongering stuff. We can't even get a cover yes. that looks different. It's so, it's so unbelievably <laughs> cliched and unimaginative that, you know, it's sort of like a Mad Libs thing. And it just, it's, it's hilarious to me that the order has congealed such that you, you, the covers even look the same. I mean, it's a small thing that says a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. I mean, if you go back to the, you know, particularly the late Stephen Harper era, I mean, we had our own version of the resistance. Like we had, and it had many of the same contours and it had the same conclusion, which was that, you know, at the end of the day, we didn't need a new Canada, right? Instead, what was what did Justin Trudeau say after the 2015 election? It wasn't Canada born anew, right? It was Canada is back, <laughs> right? It was a restorative project, very similar to, you know, in, in appeal anyway, to the appeal of somebody like Joe Biden. I would argue we even replicated the same thing on a, on a smaller scale in Toronto after the Rob Ford era, where, you know, for years we had all these panics around crises afflicting particular institutions. Conservative politicians are, are targeting such and such a bureaucrat. They're going after the long form census, uh, which is fascism somehow. Uh, you know, I didn't support getting rid of the long form census. I also don't think it was fascism. <laughs> but anyway, you know, we had this constant uh, churn of these of these kind of stories. And then they did it on an imperial scale with the Mueller investigation and, you know, Russiagate and all the rest of it in the United States. And yes, it did produce a lot of these, a lot of these books that have, you know, single word titles uh, or two word titles like On Tyranny. Enlightenment Now. Yeah, and right, exactly. Yeah. These books that frame themselves as these kind of grand interventions in the present moment, which fundamentally are about reifying and buttressing a failing liberal order and avoiding asking very, very important and urgent questions about why it's failing in favor of just this like aggressive reassertion of the status quo circa about 2015. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Dots and letters. Is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. This is Danny Bessner from the American Prestige Podcast. So the book I'd like to nominate isn't really a dumb book, um, but I think it's an important book for people who are interested in American politics to read, and that is A Promised Land by former President Barack Obama. And even though the book came out in late 2020, I actually reviewed it in early 2021, so I think uh, it fits for this category here. And I think the book is really important because it just demonstrates the degree to which Obama really identified his own individual success with the success of his country. And I think that that psychological insight or, or that really important way of understanding the world is so crucial to appreciating why Obama did what he did and what he was able to accomplish and what he wasn't able to accomplish. So I really do recommend people interested in understanding contemporary American politics to check out A Promised Land by Barack Obama. It really provides insight into one of the most important leaders of the 21st century and American liberalism writ large. Thanks to Daniel Bessner. Check out American Prestige Pod and our last episode with Danny, episode 35, The Bland Corporation. Next up, Matt McManus has his pick for worst book of 2021. So I kind of cheated uh, and chose The Authoritarian Moment by Ben Shapiro. <laughs> Somebody tweeted at me and pointed out that I've read and reviewed three Shapiro books, which kind of makes me a scholar of Shapiroism at this point. So take that as you will. And I can get into why it's bad, and it is bad. But we have a special contender today for what I'm going to be calling the post-book era, because that's the only way to describe that. And that is Mark R. Levin's American Marxism, uh, which overtook the fountainhead this year for the auspicious prize of the single worst political book I have ever read. <laughs> and what shocked me was, as much as I disliked the fountainhead and as much as it was 800 pages that I had to drag myself through, and I'm never willing to forgive objectives for that, this, despite being half the length, was vastly worse to the point where it's not even a close contest anymore. So post book, uh, American Marxism, worst book I've ever read on politics. Do not pick it up under any circumstances. 
But if your uncle has a copy laying around, do him a favor. If you're curious, steal it, read it, uh, and then throw it into the fire. Cast it into the fire, <laughs> as Alron would say. Wow, so book burning advocated here. So much for the tolerant left. <laughs> I think Ben Shapiro made some good points myself. No, there you go. Eh? Now, well, the reason that I describe this uh, Levin's book as a kind of post book uh, is it's actually interesting if you look at the kind of... Sh- structure behind uh, conservative retailers because it was a New York Times bestseller, uh, which is why I'm reviewing it for Jacobin, Ben Burgess and I, at some point it'll come out. And I was shocked that it was a number one New York Times bestseller because political books rarely reach that kind of summit uh, unless they're saying something particularly galvanizing. And then he did that infamous interview where he talked about why the Franklin School of Critical Theory uh, is undermining uh, American civilization in a variety of different ways. Uh, and double down on that in the book where it's also characterized as the Franklin School. <laughs> I mean, I'm shocked that an editor didn't read this. So you're telling me there was a sinister Marxist message in those children's stories about the little green turtle and his friends that we all knew and Oh, and Sesame Street. Let's not forget that. He's not welcome uh, at the National Conservative Concerts anymore, uh, Big Bird or any of them, uh, since they're advocating for a vaccination. But I'll just read you a little passage of this to describe why it's a post book, because it's actually not a book at all. It's a collection of giant quotations that he seems to have assembled from Google with tiny little (laughs) sentences thrown between these block quotations that give it the appearance of a book while not being a book. Like, you know, those captions you have underneath pictures in newspapers Mm -hmm. and like how the picture will take up like three quarters of the page with a little caption at the bottom being like a sentence. That's what this book is. (laughs) So I'll just read you a brief section of this, uh, not to bore you too long. This is Levin. He says, Banks cautions that, quote, one of the challenging tasks that those of us who teach multicultural education students experience is resistance to the knowledge skills that we teach. This resistance has deep roots in the communities in which most teacher education students are socialized, as well as in the mainstream knowledge that becomes institutionalized within the academic community and popular culture that most students have not questioned until they enroll in the multicultural education or diversity course. So that's one quote. Levin then pauses and says, the book is then broken down into the following chapters. And he lists all 12 chapters (laughs) in this book, all 12 of them, uh, including like the titles. And then it goes on, uh, and I won't bore you much longer. He says, Banks describes the ideological agenda attended by the book, quote, We hope to take our readers on a journey that results, and this goes on for about 300 more words before he finally starts to give an analysis, which runs to four sentences before the next big quote. This is the entire book, the entire book, right? And he's threatening us with a sequel, which is kind of like those awful Transformers movie where I I think, don't you dare. But on the one hand, I kind of had two experiences while thinking about this, right? One is that it's very interesting to analyze this book as a kind of product uh, of the conservative publishing industry in the United States, because it came, became an intellectual bestseller, despite its extraordinary impoverishment as an actual work by a nominal author. And the second thing, again, you know, I've written about postmodern conservatism before, but this really seemed to almost make it not just explicit, but into a concrete political project. Because you hear about people like Foucault or Derrida talking about the death of the author uh, and how it is that we shouldn't ascribe authorial intent when interpreting the book. And I'm like, he almost seems literally to be trying to just efface himself as an author and present a book that's a bunch of quotes saying, look at how trashy this is, lols, and leave it at that. (laughs) And it's a frightening prospect uh, because I actually don't mind engaging with some conservative intellectuals. Like I enjoyed arguing with Patrick Deneen. I enjoy arguing with Yaram Hazoni. If this is what they're going to be putting forward, I think that the conservative intellectual movement in the United States, if this becomes popular, isn't going to be really dead so much as just mummified. It's like a hollow corpse that's resurrected every Mm. now and then to kind of meander around screaming cultural Marxism, critical theory, before they put it back in its sarcophagus uh, until the next cultural war issue. It it sounds to me like the the galaxy brain take here is that from what you're describing, you know, the right has finally uh, learned to stop worrying and love deconstruction. I mean, they're doing, they're just doing Foucault now. So maybe (laughs) uh, our our actual task as uh, progressive intellectuals is to rally the forces of of modernism against the right's Frankfurt School (laughs) critical race theory agenda. Who are the American Marxists? Oh, everyone, right? Uh, That's the thing. (laughs) I'll give you a list. Uh, It's not just American Marxists. Over the course of the book, he describes people as, I have it written down here somewhere. Give me two seconds. Uh, Okay, so these are some of the terms. Marxist-like, 
the adaptions of American Marxism to Americanism, Marxist-based Marxism's tentacles, Marxism's various iterations, critical theory slash Marxism, Marxist critical theory, ideology, and propaganda, critical race theory and Marxism, and then there's a whole other bunch of different flavors. But what just amazed me is how little effort was made to even argue for it in this book. He kind of is like, these are all left-wing things, they're all Marxism, who the fuck cares any longer, uh, buy this book, right? And a year later, I'll go through a number of other quotes, or I'll at least get my aides to do so, go through Google, pick out a bunch of critical theory quotes, string them together, and I'll release another book and make another couple million dollars. Uh, and so <laughs> to get to my other book, I will say that Shapiro's The Authoritarian Movement is a better text, again, on my dishonorable mentions list. I think it's interesting for a different reason, though, because Ben Shapiro, unlike Levin, is actually capable of conjuring a, a reasonably good argument. He typically doesn't engage, I mean, everyone knows that, very substantively with what the other side has to say, especially in print. Uh, and he's better at quippy kind of one-upmanship uh, than he is at substantive argumentation. And, you know, this book begins kind of with a long... Not apology, but half-assed apology for January 6th, being like, yes, I'm aware that anybody who reviews a book called The Authoritarian Moment, How the Left is Weaponized Americans' Institutions Against Dissent, is probably going to point out that we actually had a kind of attempted coup on January 6th, where a bunch of far-right people tried to take over the government at the behest of a president who called on them to do that. But actually, the left is the one who's really doing it. Uh, they're the real authoritarians. And he lists all the familiar examples throughout the course of the book, you know, Hate speech law, century conservatives. I won't bore you all with the details. Postmodern academics, cancel culture, critical race theory. The same. Yeah, yeah. I'm, despite the fact that I can't convince my students to read a, a five-page essay on Don Stuart Mill uh, for the sake of an A grade, nevertheless, <laughs> you know, I'm having a profound impact on their lives going forward, where after they leave my <laughs> class, they're going to think to themselves, like, you know, that Marx guy was really on to something. I should probably smash capitalism <laughs> right now because that's what Professor McManus would <laughs> want me to do, right? It's an, ex it's an extraordinarily nice thing to think about us. And I sometimes wish it were true because <laughs> then maybe I could convince them to read those five pages. But alas, right? Uh, but what's interesting about the Shapiro book is at the end of the book, uh, he actually falls into a pattern that's been diagnosed uh, by a number of better scholars of conservatism. Edmund O'Neill is a good uh, example of this in his recent book, Conservatism, where he says that the political right as a reactionary movement has always been very talented at appropriating some of the ideas, rhetoric, and techniques of left-wing intellectuals and then putting them to right-wing purposes. Uh, and so there are two kind of theses in the book that come out that are kind of original, right? One which he very explicitly makes is that there is an oppressed category in the United States. So he's actually anti-Levin-esque in this sense. There is an oppressed uh, category of people in the United States and an oppressor class. And the oppressed category in the United States are conservatives. And he gives a long list of all the different people uh, who fall into that category, right? And the second thing that he does is say that the left has been very successful in marginalizing conservative voices over the course of the United States. They're authoritarians and they've done something wrong. And then at the end of the book, he says, we should be doing the same thing, which again <laughs> is quite striking as an acknowledgement where he says, if they've been successful doing it, sometimes you have to fight fire with fire and we should just do the same thing, which of course, you know, opens out to accusations of hypocrisy or double stand, whatever, right? Uh, but it is again, kind of original that he's willing to go there. Uh, and that's not something you would see being the Shapiro scholar that I am, in his earlier books, like The Right Side of History, where he was really trying to play into the classical liberal sensibilities that, say, somebody like Luke was talking about, where it's like, you know, we need peace and mm -hmm. healing, and everyone should just support the Trump agenda, but launch softball criticisms of it every now and then, like I do. So those are my two books of the year. Reading your review is kind of interesting. Like, I think you called it unintentionally funny for the way that it's <laughs> kind of riddled with contradictions. Like, he spends pages quibbling over whether or not Dr. Jill Biden is a doctor. And then he says the left is too obsessed with quibbling over language, like, without any kind of self-reflection. And I'm curious, like, when you say kind of that mask off moment at the end where he's just like, we should do this, does he know about his own contradictions? And he's just saying, like, let's just be totally postmodern about it and, um, and just insist upon whatever our interpretation is? Or, like, does he recognize these inconsistencies? Yeah, absolutely, right? And he acknowledges that to a certain extent, being a successful movement entails affirming rather than negating uh, some of your contradictions, uh, to use kind of ostentatious right. Hegelian language that the book doesn't deserve, right? <laughs> And again, I think that's what's problematic for him ideologically, of course, is that Ben Shapiro very much falls into the paradigm uh, of kind of moralistic fusionist rejection of liberalism and the left wholesale, mm -hmm. where the idea is, putting it really simply, we're supposed to be better people than they are, which is why we should be in charge. And one of the problems with 
affirming your contradictions this way is you can't put forward an ideal and then compromise it immediately uh, and then still say that you hold to the ideal, right? Either you're a principled person right. or you're not. Uh, that's unfortunately the kind of way it works in this moralistic universe. It's a revealing moment in that sense, uh, since he really puts together or synthesizes a lot of what's interesting about American conservatism intellectually and politically right now, right? One is this kind of parasitic relationship to left-wing rhetoric, where it's even willing to affirm what Levin wants to deny, which is that there is an oppressor-oppressed narrative that works. It's just not the one that the leftists put forward, since conservatives are the ones who are really the victims of authoritarian socialism allied with authoritarian liberalism and authoritarian capitalism. It's all stacked against them, right? And also this affirmation of the idea that if they're going to play dirty, we should just take the gloves off, which is kind of ridiculous because I think they've been doing that for a long time, and not even drop the pretense <laughs> of being better uh, and just fight them as fiercely as possible. So it's a very interesting book this way, far more interesting than his other two, which were very vanilla kind of Reaganite trash, frankly. So definitely worth reading if you want to get a sense, uh, A, for where Shapiro's thinking is, and B, where a kind of millennial conservatism might go in the future. <laughs> Is he still the cool kids philosopher? Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, <laughs> you see how he responded to, uh, what was the name of that song? You know, Wet Ass Pussy, who was the one who did that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing that always, like, like I always struggle with with Ben Shapiro because I know he's very, I mean, he's very hugely popular podcaster and as kind of, um, you know, conservative careerists go. He's done, I mean, he's built a, a hell of a career for himself. Um, I assume he's, can only assume he's fabulously rich. The thing I, I struggle with is just how anybody actually stands listening to his voice and how, I'm sorry, but a, a shrimpy beta male, <laughs> male like that has become like the guy for a certain kind of like millennial, you know, new right, like conservative, you know, he's like Chapo Trap House for guys that like listen to Wagner remixes, <laughs> like tech, like EDM versions of Wagner in their dorm room and wore bow ties at Frosh. Like it's hard for me to account for him and his popularity in a way which doesn't involve just like, like thinking about some of the most outrageous young conservatives that I knew in university who like really were those guys that like mm. went to Confederate themed barbecues and had like... British Empire posters in their dorm room and were like trying to get you to come to like a movie night where they were screening Zulu and like, <laughs> like you know, things like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, speaking of affirming your contradictions, uh, when I wrote this review, I got a number of emails from Ben fans, all of which were extremely charming. My favorite of which, again, speaking of affirming your contradictions, ran, I bet you're gay and suck dick. Uh, if the two of you are in a room, Ben would rape the shit out of you. And I'm just like, I'm not exactly sure what you're getting at. Are you homophobic? You, are yeah. you kind of internalizing a lot of these feminist sensibilities and you realize that rape is actually about power? So if he does this to me, it's a power move rather than something that's homo homoerotic. I'm not sure. And I spent days just mincing the kind of subtle philosophical flavorings uh, of this email <laughs> along this way, right? That's an example of how I, f I can't account, I'm unable to account for the popularity of someone, something like Ben Shapiro without just, I mean, to me, the appeal is so clearly psychological and id-based appeal. Mm. Like it's affective to be a little pretentious about it. I mean, yeah. if you look at like Ben Shapiro YouTube, all the videos, it's like that uh, sort of peak 2006, you know, type of viral video, which was like the Hitch slap <laughs> or whatever, where Christopher Hitchens like Riley owns like an Orthodox <laughs> rabbi or something by talking, but you know, well, why don't you believe in the flying spaghetti monster or whatever? Uh, maybe that was Richard Dawkins that was into the flying spaghetti monster. But, you know, you, you know, you yeah, I, I mean. think Kitchens would have been a bit clever. Right, right, right. <laughs> but it's all the Ben Shapiro ones are like that. It's always like uh, Ben Shapiro, like slapping down, you know, rhetorically slapping down like vegan SJW or something. And like, I really think the appeal of it to a lot of people is, you know, if you're if you're like a conservatively inclined like male at a liberal arts college or something, I mean, it is, it's all college politics. Like these it people is. are so obsessed with how colleges, you know, the, 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 the pathologies of like liberal arts colleges have infected, you know, our culture and stuff. And yet that is kind of what a lot of this is, is born out of at their end. It seems to me, these are the, 
you know, SJW people that stand up in their classes that they secretly have a crush on, <laughs> but want to talk about like, you know, want to talk about racism or, or whatever. And it's like an attempt to awkwardly psychologically negotiate that, it seems like. I mean, I really resist this. I don't I don't think it's a good habit to get into where like you dismiss your ideological opponents as just like, oh, it's all born out of like psychosexual pathology or something like that's kind of a lazy habit. But I mean, if the shoe fits. Yeah, it's hard to deny like all the videos of of him like shutting down 20 or 19 year olds at college. It's like it's clearly a bunch of guys who didn't get laid in college and are trying to like enact their fantasy or or the other one, the, the clip where he talks about being at parties and like reading books because he didn't like the people <laughs> yeah. he was around. Like, like, clearly he was just like a social outcast uh, or, or too socially awkward to actually fit in. And so this like reading books in the corner, if he actually did it, I mean, who knows? Yeah, it's like, well, you kids were quote unquote smashing. I yeah. was reading a little something called the Western Canon. Yeah. Thank you yeah. very much. But you know that he'd be there and he'd be reading it really overtly. Yeah. Like he wouldn't be sitting there in a corner like or staying at home. He'd be there while everyone else is having a good time. Like with Plato just like stuck between his nose, being like, "Oh, hello! Look at how smart I am!" Right. But to the extent that you know, to the extent that politics is becomes a identity-based team sport, especially through a political partisan lens, Shapiro is the guy like Matthew Barnaby. You know, I don't know if anyone remembers Matthew Barnaby, who was one of the biggest shithead hockey players, or Claude Lemieux, or Dino Cicerelli. You know. <laughs> Who are these? Who are who are goons? Right? They have one job. Their job is mm. to go out there and to throw elbows, or to back check or cross check you into the boards from behind, or to be utter shits and to rile up the other side. They were utterly un. You know, Cicerelli was a little better, but like they're utterly unserious players in a lot of ways. How do you know something is a Canadian podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but you you fucking hated them when they were, when they were on the other team. But yeah. when they were on your team and they were out there making little shits and instigating penalties and driving everyone insane, you loved them. And to me, people like Shapiro play that role so well. They are such good instigators. There doesn't have to be any there there. Mm. They're out there with their elbows up and they're cross checking you from behind into the boards and they're driving people nuts. And we're retweeting them or quote tweeting them to dump and it's amplifying them and it feeds into that ecosystem and it feeds the clicks and it feeds the book sales and it feeds the podcast listens. You know, the algorithm doesn't count a hate listen differently than it does a, an earnest one. Mm. And, and then it creates that ecosystem and fuels that culture war. And as a, as a strategy that is embedded in, in part of the marketplace and in part in ideological identity-based politics, it works so well. <laughs> You know, it just works so yeah. well. And uh, and that is 30 seconds on why Matthew Barnaby and, Matt, and, and Ben Shapiro are effectively the same person in utter shits. <laughs> and that, you know, there's some more CanCon for you. I'm trying to keep the CanCon up in the conversation <laughs> so that the CRTC doesn't come knocking, you know? If we accept that thesis that they're the kind of enforcers that they're basically hamstringing us, because right? we're not talking about our skilled players right now. We're talking about Ben Shapiro and, and the things that he did that pissed us off. And like you said, quote tweeting him. It's taking up a lot of the oxygen. Is it working then? Is it, is, was that the whole point of it? I think so, yeah. But I think there is something to be learned by reading these books and actually analyzing these figures seriously culturally. Because what the right has been very skilled at historically, and this is true of its premier intellectuals as well. Uh, but Ben Shapiro really is able to appropriate a lot of the kind of superficial features of left-wing rhetoric intellectualism and style and apply it to his work. And that goes down to giving his work a kind of iconoclastic or even rebellious mm. feel to it. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, Paul Joseph Watson had that t-shirt <laughs> where he said, conservatism uh, is the new counterculture or the new punk rock, right? Uh, and as a Nirvana fan, I was just deeply, deeply wounded uh, when he started talking about Kurt Cobain, you know, and the alt-right or something. Like, I just thought to myself, like, if Kurt Cobain was here, he'd probably have another nervous breakdown, right? But again, this isn't, you know, uh, atypical. It's something that they've been very gifted at for a very long time. And I think one of the things that we need to do as progressives is recognize this dynamic on the one hand, right? And realize that the tools that we assemble won't necessarily be ours if other people can use them more effectively uh, than we can, Right. Uh, and think of strategies, intellectual and cultural, uh, in order to try to combat that without being merely reactive, you know, without being that kind of person, as Dave put it, who just retweets Ben Shapiro uh, whenever he says something stupid about authoritarianism, being like, that's not true, you know, how dare you, or whatever. <laughs> and I'm not sure what the solution is. 
So the question of is it working? I mean, whether it's working in a in a strategic or a political sense, I mean, I think that's somewhat of a of an open question. I think it's achieving its principal end, which is to sell books and to cater to a particular market niche. Because at the end of the day, uh, that is what so much of this is really about. And the whole kind of like these two kind of uh, parallel industries we're talking about, whether it's the uh, the, the the reactionaries uh, reacting to what they see as the excesses of Marxoid liberalism or whatever, or whether it's the liberals reacting to the reactionaries, which which came first, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. But the point is the two are symbiotic and, and they're, one could not exist without the other. Like you don't get alt-right transgressiveness unless you have liberal prudishness. And I think the same applies the other way as well. And it, the ecosystem's great for catering to specific audiences, selling books, and for continuing our civilization-wide epistemic collapse into <laughs> just like a, a choose-your-own-adventure uh, type of type of reality. But it works in terms of kind of selling books and, and that sort of thing. You know, so it works in a market sense, but um, whether it works in, in terms of actually moving political institutions in a substantive way, I'm not so, I'm not so sure. I think in a big way, one of the reasons why the culture war rages so fiercely is because political institutions themselves are so immovable and you have to put political energy somewhere, you know, in a mass uh, society that's going to at least have the, um, the liturgy of, of, of democratic engagement um, with, but, but institutions that are increasingly uh, in many ways, I would argue kind of post democratic in the way they behave. I'm, politics still happens. People, mm-hmm. people are political animals. There's still, you know, there still has to be some point of engagement. And so the culture war, uh, I think, fulfills that function very well. But that function, I think, primarily is or can be a very depoliticizing one, even even uh, when we're talking about these hyper politicized and, and very kind of ideologically niche publishing or podcasting markets or, or whatever. So spoiler, the, the Franklin School people were right from the very beginning, I guess. well guys this has been so much fun thank you so much for for coming on today yes fantastic thanks for having me david you know i'm not going to plagiarize uh your hockey analogy there because it's so good and so distinctive (laughs) but uh, i just want to say that i'm super jealous i think that was one of the the best (laughs) analogies i've ever heard describing ben shapiro and what he did oh my lord well that's i I feel free to steal it and Let's check and see what Madeline Albright thinks of it first. And if she's cool with it, then I think it's just, by that point, it's public. That was David Mosscrop, Luke Savage, and Matt McManus. You can find all of them on our show notes. And special thanks to our call-in guests, Daniel Bessner of the American Prestige Pod and Lyda Gold of Art for the End Times. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Epilonio. Research and show notes from Dave Mosscrop. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our designs are by Dakota Coop. And I'm your host and editor, Gordon Kadic. Send us your feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca. Or you can tweet us at Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Cited Media. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday.